This podcast is supported by IHI, also known as the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, who have been improving health and healthcare worldwide for 30 years. Those of you familiar with IHI will already be aware of their work to make care continually safer by reducing harm and preventable mortality. Patients and patient safety are at the heart of what IHI does, and that's why IHI encourages the use of the SBAR technique. SBAR stands for Situation, Background, Assessment, Recommendation, and they've developed a tool to help foster a culture of patient safety in any health and healthcare setting. Learn more and download the SBAR tool at IHI.org and start using it today. While you're there, check out the many other tools and free resources available from IHI, including QI tools, health equity reports, and patient safety tools, to name a few. That's IHI.org. Check it out today. Welcome to Care Talk, America's home for incisive debate about healthcare business and policy. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of CareCentrics. David, primary care. We talk a lot about different aspects of healthcare. Everybody talks about how primary care is important, but we don't really talk about what it is. Well, John, we, we can remedy that right on this episode. In fact, let's use this episode of Care Talk to dig into how the pandemic changed primary care. Well, maybe we should start with what about telehealth? Telehealth was this big change in primary care during the pandemic. Do you think telehealth's here to stay? I think, John, the question, for sure it's here to stay. The question is, you know, why is telehealth here to stay? And I think we could talk about that during our discussion of primary care. I think oh, you want to. Oh, are you just. Now you're just kind of criticizing <laughs> the application of technology, the advancement of big new ideas. Which, tell me exactly. What your beef is with telehealth? Here's my beef, John. We said, let's talk about primary care. We never have a chance to talk about it. And then you say, no, let's actually forget about that. Let's actually skip over just to the sexy topic of telehealth. I think we should start with the basics, the fundamentals, the primary portion of this podcast should be on primary care, John. Okay. Okay. So fine. So we will slow walk the basics so that you can catch up to what the rest of the industry is talking about, which is that primary care in the middle of value-based care in this massive movement to value-based care couldn't be more important. So finally, fine, David, let's explain what, well, how do you define primary care? <laughs> well, John, it's a good one, you know, and it's like the sort of thing when you say there's no stupid questions, except if I can't come up with a good answer, then I don't know what to say about that question. So, you know, what is primary care? Well, one thing I heard it described as is, you know, a primary care doctor is a doctor who specializes in not specializing. So like your classic general practitioner that has every, you know, takes care of everything that, that comes at him. The American um, Academy of Family Physicians, who are basically primary care doctors, oh. yeah, they talk about integrated accessible healthcare services. And they talk about- oh, there's a footnote. Yeah. Well, I don't even know what that means. Which part? Healthcare? <laughs> <laughs> so, no. What does integrated accessible yeah. care mean? Yeah. No, it's a, it's a good one. So- you know, basically, it's a it's a team approach. It's, I don't I don't know, John. Integrated. You know, it's better than actually. Later, it comes to a, a weird part of the definition where it talks about practicing in the context of family and and community. So the basic idea is like it gets these are doctors that can take care of most of what you need. And actually, it's not just doctors, but the AAFP is just uh, is just doctors. 
So, yeah, you know, so they, what they do, they did, they hear preventive care can handle the occasional acute illness and they play a really important role in chronic condition management, John. Those are sort of the functions. You're kind of struggling with all those big words. Isn't really what it comes down to that your primary care doctor kind of knows you and knows everything and does nothing. And your specialists, the surgeons and the, and the, and the, and the specialists, uh, really do everything, but don't necessarily know who you are. I mean, the, the most important thing about primary care, I think, is that it's your gateway to healthcare. It should be a doctor in a doctor's office that knows you and knows your problems, that sometimes is there for kind of urgent advice, but is there for the everyday, whether it's regular healthy care or chronic sick care, but really knows who you are and can help coordinate and manage your care. It's It's the it's the the ideal is the the Marcus Welby, the local neighbor who yeah. knows you and your kids and your family, and who can actually help. Co- and then, in, from a managed care perspective, um, it's it's really the the they're doing the care traffic control. John, you're bringing a tear to my eye, the Marcus Welby reference. But you know, another way to think about <laughs> primary care is you could call it the seven percent solution, John, because that's actually the percent of total oh. healthcare spending. Uh, that is on that is that is expended on primary care. So I don't know what specialists do, but I know that they take home twenty percent of the pie and hospital thirty eight percent. So primary care is maybe because it's primarily doesn't get paid. Well, it's 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 a real problem. I mean, the the average internist, uh, pediatrician, the general practice of primary care is often paid you know twenty to thirty cents on the dollar of what a specialist would be paid. What a cardiac surgeon or an eye surgeon or any of the interventional specialties. And one of the other challenges in this country is that, you know, I think probably chasing compensation, 70% of all the doctors are specialists and 30% of them are primary care doctors. Whereas in the rest of the world, 70% of the doctors are primary care orientation and 30% are specialists. And that may have something to do with the fact that everything in the United States costs so much because the care is going to the most expensive part of the healthcare system. But, you know, the reason why I think primary care is so essential and why it's worth digging into is we, we, we absolutely need primary care if we're ever going to get our arms around chronic care management and connecting you, David, with all of your chronic care and social and emotional issues yeah. with someone who can help coordinate your care. That sounds good, John. Now, listen, you know, we talked a lot about tertiary care and we're doing a long podcast here on primary care. I think a podcast on secondary care would be pretty short because I don't even think that exists. <laughs> they just skip right over it, John. So tertiary care, well, but no, but tertiary care is ter- care in a hospital. Let's explain it for people. Okay, Let's okay. not get into your integrated whatever. And then primary care is really that 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 care that 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 really is. Now, now when you think about it, David, all of the burden or much of the burden rather of the pandemic really hit those primary care doctors and nurses very hard who were the again uh the they were kind of the heat shield for the pandemic hit get, getting hit with all of the the questions and the care for everything from 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 the average sniffles to you know folks who were who, who had to be intubated i mean it it's been a very difficult couple of years for again the most important hinge point access point of the healthcare system, which are the doctors and nurses that are the first line of who you need to actually get care for you and your loved ones. Well, John, it's fair enough. And let's point out that, you know, there's about 300,000 primary care providers in the U.S. About 200,000 of them are physicians. 
Uh, the rest, about 56,000 nurse practitioners and about 30,000 physician assistants. So it's not just doctors, although it is primarily doctors. Uh, you know what? Well, it's a it, it, great point because because it because it because it really a lot because primary care, which is the again the care that you need when you're the, with your first step in healthcare, is it's a team based it's a team based sport. Let's talk about what happened during the pandemic with primary care. You know, the first thing that happened, Sean, is that a lot of the practices just shut down, and of course, they talk about they didn't get seven percent; they got zero percent of the uh, of the income right there at first. Plus, when they started to open up again, they had to have new expenses like personal protective. Um, equipment, you know, and the other thing that happened is these are a lot of them are small businesses. So like a lot of small businesses out there, they were they were nimble, they figured it out, they had a lot of challenges, but they figured out, uh, you know, they more or less figured it out. And they did shift right away to telehealth before they even knew if they'd get paid for it. Well, I think I, I think one of the things that re remember, the, the reason why they shut down quickly is because uh, they were a they're 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 largely fee for service. Not everybody's moved to value based or capitated or being paid on a budget. Secondly, those offices were super spreaders potentially for people getting sick, and it was really tough on the staff and the individual participants. So they've got their income went to zero, and they became dangerous places to to work. But you know the the CARES Act and a number of other supports from the federal government. Kind of funded the the transition um, to the, the 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 other side of the pandemic, but I think David, you know, what's sort of interesting is it 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 accelerated the transition of you know we've we've historically in the United States had really the 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 primary care your local neighborhood doctor has been a, a to your point a small office a small business, but there is an underlying um, aggregation of doctors where. Gosh, and by 2018, I think close to 60% of all doctors were were basically in some form of an employment contract with a large doctor group or a hospital. And I've got to think that's accelerated. And we're going to lose. And what I worry about is we're going to lose some of that that neighborhood feel that you had with the independent doctors. But the, if the pandemic proved anything, it's that as an independent doctor, doctor's office in a crisis, you're put under extreme financial duress. I think one of the impacts of the pandemic on primary care, so it's going to force more folks to to sell their practices or just go and become employed docs. Well, John, the numbers are not all uh, in, but I do understand that there was a sharp increase in the number of acquisitions of these independent practices by the big systems. Now, if you think about it, you know, you mentioned that primary care did a lot during the pandemic. Uh, I know my own primary care physician, you know, helped keep me from having to go into the into the emergency room or, or the hospital when I had COVID to help care for the patients once they're out. But there's a couple of things that have happened that actually may accelerate their demise. So one was the financial stress or duress or dress or whatever it is that you talked about uh, before. That's part of it. But if you look at what they didn't do, you know, they did not make the primary care physician office the, the, the focus sites for vaccination. So, you know, even though with the, you know, hesitancy about the vaccine, your primary care physician in, in the context of that, I guess, integrated, you know, holistic relationship actually can persuade people to get a uh, vaccine as part of their overall care. So they, they were not really the focus for vaccination or for testing, and they've had the financial strains. So we're probably going to exit the pandemic with less primary care um, and less of the Marcus, fewer of the Marcus Welbys and, uh, you know, not very many independent practices. Well, it's, it's really, it's an interesting challenge because a lot of the move to value-based care where you could get kind of healthcare on a budget and you could be paid on outcomes as opposed to activity, really depends on more primary care. And as many as 500,000 docs and nurses 
who were providing care during the pandemic are actually thinking about retiring. I mean, I think that with by by 2021, by 2025 to 2030, we're going to be close to a 50,000 plus doc deficit based on projections that were pre-pandemic. I can't imagine what's going to happen if the number of doctors starts to retire even faster. And this these jobs were really hard. I mean, the reason why the pandemic talking about primary care in the pandemic is so important is that typically doctors and nurses were working 50% more and putting themselves and their families at risk in the middle of this pandemic. So at a time when we've got 10,000 people turning Medicare eligible every day, um, this baby, the, the, the boomers are, 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 now blue, are, are now graduating into the period of, of great chronic care needs. We've got doctors going the other way and we've got screwed up immigration policy. There's 10,000 nurses, David, at a time when one out of every three, one out of every five nurses wants to quit. We've got 10,000 nurses who are qualified, who are stuck in the bureaucratic mass of our screwed up immigration bureaucracy. And I think you're going to have to see the, 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 the way we actually solve the supply and demand problem that's emerging around demand for care and supply of talent is we're going to have to open up those gates of, for, for immigration for qualified docs and nurses. Yeah. Uh, because we can't, we'll never get to better value-based care if you can't find a doctor to, to access it from. Well, John, I, I get a little confused with your statistics. It's 10,000 nurses turning 65 every day. It's definitely a challenge to, uh, <laughs> to be able to deal with. Now, I want to get back to one of your questions that you asked uh, early on. Uh, I knew you wanted to get to. I mean, why is telehealth here to stay, John? Why is it? Oh, it's obvious. I mean, come on. <laughs> look, look, at, look at what you're doing right now. We're using a, 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 a televideo technology to communicate and connect with our, 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 our beloved audience. Right. It, it, why wouldn't we? I mean, healthcare is the only place. Healthcare subsidizes the fax business. I mean, we have to lean into new technologies, and telehealth simply provides another kind of omni-channel opportunity for doctors and nurses to be able to communicate with their patients. I mean, why wouldn't we do it? Well, I, What's your solution for the homebound elderly person? What's your solution for making a doctor's day more efficient? What's your solution for reconnecting? I mean, you're not, you're not answering any of my John, questions. John, this, is, this is like telebullying. You know, that's, there's no reimbursement for that. I'll tell you that much. So, you know, I, what happened... The reason telehealth hadn't been used before, one, it wasn't reimbursed. You know, before the pandemic, it was only 1% of primary care visits were telehealth. It shot up to about 80%, now back down closer to 20%. I think it really depends on, you know, on reimbursement policy. There are some issues, John, with telehealth, although I think this would go both, both ways. One that people talk about is about, you know, issues of equity and making sure people have access. Now, on the one hand, maybe uh, people that have more uh, means are more likely to be able to get online and so on. But on the other hand, those are also people that could take off half a day to go to the doctor's office. Whereas if you've got telehealth, you're in the break room, you know, you're on your lunch break or before or after sitting in your car, you can do a telehealth visit with a phone, you know, which most people, most people have. So I think it's just a matter of being conscious to make sure that we use telehealth not to exacerbate disparities, but actually to reduce them. I, I think it's eminently doable. No, that's a really, it's a really good point. But I mean, there is that, that, that Medicare statistic that, that theoretically it's going to cost Medicare another 20 to $30 billion if they permit telehealth visits. For me, it isn't a question of how much the televisits are going to cost. It's whether they can actually drive, to your point, more connection and collaboration between caregivers, patients, 
and uh, and their and the care providers. And I, I I think the question is framed the wrong way. I mean, w- w- but 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 we have been historically incredibly conservative in healthcare and allowing technology to to actually accelerate. And this is purely a co- connective connecting issue. And and I think we you are going to see more and more health insurers, and I've, hopefully the feds in the states, to find appropriate ways to compensate and support that those connections, because it actually do, it, is, it is a bridge to sort of solving some health equity issues for folks who are working two jobs and either sick or have sick children or, or, or parents themselves. John, I got another question for you. So, you know, we talked a lot about uh, the primary care practices being sucked up by the big hospital systems and so on. But also, as I was talking about the uh, the vaccines and testing, a lot of that's been done in some of your big drugstore chains. I'm thinking like a Walgreens, a CVS, a Walmart, and, and some of those players are getting into primary care as well. And I think they're figuring, hey, I'm kind of offering primary care. This is what primary care is uh, these days. Why not go broader? I mean, how do you feel about that movement? Well, I think it's I think it's really exciting because I think that the the there 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 aren't any healthcare providers that that have anything close to like a phenomenal Apple 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 product Apple store Apple service kind of like experience. And so the the talent and the leadership that has started to build that into our pharmacy chains and has a deeper, a better sense of how to connect and communicate. Uh, I think bringing that talent and merging it with some of the provider talent, like a like w- w- with Walgreens and Village MD, is only going to provide more innovation and kind of more access, I think, to patients. The other challenge you've got with, you know, again, the, the healthcare system has been a, um, you show up and sometimes we, ca- we serve and care for you kind of model. Yeah. I think we can make the, the access to chronic care, chronic care advice, chronic care support uh, more accessible. And we've got, you know, I don't know, close to 40 to 50,000 retails, co- pharmacy locations in America. If we can actually leverage those locations to give people more access to care, drugs are increasingly more important uh, to, for continuity of care. Putting that all together in a local, in a local neighborhood where, uh, again, not going back to Marcus Welby, but but a, but a neighborhood yeah. location where you actually know the person who's caring for you, I think could be really exciting. John, it's interesting because these chains have also experimented with other kinds of uh, approaches, like you know, urgent care clinics that are not actually meant to be primary care. They don't handle like the chronic conditions and so on. They're making some tremendous investments now in the primary care side. So you mentioned uh, Walgreens with the Village MD investment, about five billion dollars investment from them. Clearly, Amazon is doing a lot. Uh, with their service, CVS uh, has something like 1,500 health hubs uh, that they're moving in that same direction. And Walmart, you know, their ambitions go, interestingly, beyond primary care. You know, some of their clinics are more comprehensive and, John, do I dare say integrated, uh, that are covering a lot, of different, uh, a lot of different specialties. But, you know, all these big players, you know, adds up to less room for the small guys or, frankly, even for the health systems. I'm, I'm not sure that's a bad thing from a consumer standpoint. Yeah, I, I think what I like about it is is the level of innovation. Walmart is also really investing in virtual care. I think that Aetna, CVS, and uh, Walgreens Boots Alliance are are thinking about how do you integrate pharmacists in, and pharmacists have historically not been integrated. They're thinking about how do you put together a care team that might have some more mental health professionals, make that more accessible. Uh, Walmart has invested in 
kind of computer-assisted diagnoses. I think what's interesting about these new players is they're going to be more rapidly investing in newer models. And that's 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 got to be all to the good for the American patient and consumer. You know, they're not all going to win. Yeah. They're not all going to work. But it's not like there's not tremendous opportunities to improve the consumer experience in healthcare. And that's not just about a consumer choice. It's about how you access and get the care you need when you need it in a way that you can utilize it. And that's where I think there's tremendous opportunity for these big retail players and their perspective on what kind of bets they can make, whether it's virtual care, whether it's playing around with integrated care with pharmacists, uh, leveraging some of the the AI technologies, the learning technologies, and also, frankly, providing access to care for folks in underserved communities. I think it's really, it's exciting that they're jumping in. John, I want to ask a last question here. Maybe we can both weigh in on this one, which is, would you advise someone, you know, to become a primary care physician? Let's say somebody graduating from college, thinking of going to medical school or someone coming out of the medical school and, and thinking about what they want to do for a, spe- a specialty. Primary care, how would you rate it? All uh, it, 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 it is and will increasingly be the most important part of the healthcare system. I think it's an, it could, can be an incredibly rewarding career because you really are providing the care that people need this is when they need it. And you've got a relationship um, in the right practice with your patients. I, 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 could, I can't think of something I, 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 that's a more admirable profession. And I think the demand is going to continue to grow. I think it's a good place to go too, John. I mean, it's been a sort of um, thankless job in that, uh, you know, doesn't, doesn't pay all that well compared to the specialties. You still got to do all the training. You got the medical school debt um, and so on. And in some cases, a primary care is just seen as like a gatekeeper for trying to get to the specialist. But I think this is coming, if not a golden era of primary care, at least a, a silver era um, that's going to be pretty, pretty good. And you actually do see, I know, John, you mentioned earlier in the show uh, that you know, a lot of physicians were thinking of retiring, leaving the profession. When you look at it from a primary care basis, the primary care doctors are not not so much like that. They definitely were talking about burnout and stress, but they're actually kind of sticking with it. Um, and I think that what we've seen is that primary care really has done a lot in dealing with the pandemic. And so it's becoming seen as a, a rewarding career choice. And we actually are seeing people uh, be interested in it. So I think they're making the right move. And I think from a, you know, from a societal standpoint, it's a, it's a wonderful, a wonderful thing, John. Well, and, and frankly, from a value-based care perspective, now they're going to be paid bonuses and incentives to actually deliver the care that some of the best doctors are already living. I think I think this could be a real golden era for primary care, not just for docs, but for nurse practitioners, advanced practice physicians, for PAs, for that anyone who's involved for those those retails those centers that have primary care. I think I think this could be a golden era and growth clearly for those areas. For, for, for those providers. I, I'm really excited about it. So John, we've covered a lot in this episode on primary care after my initial struggles to define, you know, what the heck it is. We talked about telehealth. We talked about who's providing care. We talked about how much is getting paid and, and who isn't. We'll have to talk another time about uh, direct primary care and concierge. That'll be, that'll be for another, uh, uh, another show. Talked about Walgreens. We for talked your about- high end, your, your, your high end specialty concierge, well, Boston, Doctors. Now we're talking, John. Actually, I think we'll have to charge a, a fee for anybody who wants to hear that show. So uh, before we get uh, before we get into giving away any of that primary, tertiary, or quaternary content, I'm just going to say that's it for yet another episode of Care Talk. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. 
And I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of Care Centrics. If you liked what you heard or you didn't, please subscribe on your favorite service.